Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and who love making things, historically related or otherwise. And before our main topic, we like to start by talking about what we have been making and or baking recently. So, what have you been doing? I have been abroad TM and I didn't <laughs> want to pack any crafts because the stuff I have at the moment doesn't travel well. Mm-hmm. Um, although since we got back, I have started making a granny hexagon cardigan for Nick. Sounds cute. It's, it's really good because you basically you do these two hexagons and they kind of form themselves into L shapes. And then you oh. just sort of sew them together and it becomes a cardigan. That sounds really neat. Well, because you, you turn all of the corners at right angles. So it just wants to fold itself in this specific way that you can then turn it into a cardigan <laughs> with just a little bit of like sewing. Genius. It's okay. actual magic. I also like this sort of grandparent core vibe that this is giving me. It is It is two very grandparent things, crochet and cardigans. Uh, I, I cannot wait to see this and how it works. I, th- I think it works by magic. Must be. If you can't figure out how it works, the answer is magic, right? Yeah. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Sometimes that technology is crochet. I was going to say, I love that crochet is an advanced technology, which it is. It's surprisingly recent. Mm-hmm. We should do an episode on it. I thought you were going to at one point. I was, and then other things kept being interesting. Ah, oh, there's other things. Too many interesting things. It's Speaking of interesting things, what have you been up to? Oh, well, uh, also not that much, because I moved... And I also started a new job. And those things kind of happened at the same time. <laughs> and I, An and ideal. Now, um, yeah, and then I was just like, why am I so stressed? Oh, maybe because I'm trying to do everything in my life at once. <laughs> You're just speed running. So, so I'm here with a glass of wine. <laughs> um, but I do have something upcoming. Because oh. I have been asked to make some knitted bats for work um so i am an occupational therapist and i work in a hospital and in our office in the ot department we have a little storage room and a little meeting room and the little meeting room is called the greenhouse because it has loads of plants in it and the little storage room is called the bat cave and our team lead is amazing she created like this uh, this little garden in the courtyard but um she asked me to knit a bat for the bat cave, which is obviously I was absolutely delighted by. So I'm going to do that. Um, I found a really cute pattern. It's called Boo the Bat um, by Anna Hakovic. That one. I think I... Weirdly, I I've get... made that specific bat. No way! I, I, I hung it in the window as a Halloween decoration. Amazing. I had no idea we were going to be bat buddies. <laughs> um, so, yeah, 
I'm getting some yarn. I'm gonna um, use a brushed alpaca yarn Ooh. on the body of the bats so that they'll be fluffy. This is a swanky bat. I know. And one of them is gonna, for the bodies, I've ordered one like brown yarn and one sort of yellowish because I, one of them's gonna be an Egyptian fruit bat. And the other one, I'm gonna try and modify the ears to make them like different so I can make another kind of bat. Um, I love that you have specific kinds of bats in mind. Well, it started off like I'll make a generic bat, and then I looked up. I I just Google image searched bat, <laughs> um, because I don't know a lot about all the kinds of bat, despite loving them. And then I found out more about all the kinds of bat, and then I was like, oh, I could make them specific bat. So that's happening. That, that um, is just excellent. I'm gonna have a good time. Um, and that, that is pretty much it for the moment. So, what are we talking about today? I thought a fun book to look at would be the first English language autobiography. Depending on how you define English language and autobiography. <laughs> I feel that's a caveat to most things on in, in history. Um, but that sounds amazing. Who is it by? Are you aware of English mystic Marjorie Kemp? Ah, so I am. I actually was given the book of Marjorie Kemp for my birthday a while back, but I don't think I ever read it fully, and I had no idea it was the first ever English language autobiography. Mm-hmm. So... The reason I, ha I attach those caveats is this book is 15th century, so it's, it's, it's in English, but also the version I have is translated into more modern English. <laughs> Makes sense. And autobiography is because essentially... The idea is that it's written in her words, mm -hmm. um, but it was written by two of her confessors, so there's kind of a question of how much uh, of it is her words. Okay. So it's nominally her autobiography, but like... It's, it's theoretically an autobiography. Okay. Okay. I'm excited. Which honestly is an interesting start already, I think. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of like context there already. So what what did she do in her life? So she she's most well known as a mystic. She was friends with um Julian of Norwich, who's quite a well known mystic of that kind of period okay um wasn't that the one who was like in a tiny cell in a church one of many yeah mm. <laughs> that's that was kind of a thing with medieval mystics it's like just living in this tiny little room completely dependent on a priest totally fine ha starving yourself and having religious visions mm-hmm but um, something just Sorry. You know, every every church um, needs one. 
it's it's just a, a fun decoration. Um, so she was merchant class. Her father was a merchant and was mayor of Kings Lynn for a while. Okay, sounds um, important. Her brother, well, we think her brother, um, records, you know, records. <laughs> um, was member of parliament for Lynn, and her husband was a um, an alderman. John Kemp, okay. who was also the coroner of King's Lynn for a while. Ah. That's, a, from what I learned recently, the coroner is from... Oh, no, sorry. I've misread my own notes. Her father was oh. coroner, but her husband was also an important man in the town. Okay. So quite a worldly family. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is worth noting, as you said, coroner did not mean, like, body examiner at that point. Yeah, as I recall, is it just like, it's the crown comes from, like, the crown's man. So, like, he represents the king in that, in certain acts of business in that part of the... Yeah, so, so they, they would do things that modern coroners do. Um, but could also um, outlaw people, pardon people. Um, they would be in charge of having people arrested because obviously this is before a modern police force. Uh, safeguards properties that have been forfeited to the crown, mm -hmm. which interestingly is kind of still reflected in one of the roles of the coroners now because um, did you know that under the Treasure Act it's the coroner that makes the decision about who owns treasure? I I actually didn't. <laughs> that's fantastic. I love that that's like the one like historical responsibility that the job has held on to. Well, I mean, medieval coroners did also investigate murders and suicides and things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's like coroners then basically just a stand-in for the crown. Coroners now, dead people and treasure. <laughs> Sometimes both. Sometimes both. But only if it's very old. Um... So as a woman born around 1373, she didn't receive a lot of formal education. She she doesn't mention it. We have no reason to think that she would have. And she generally lived a fairly normal life up until the birth of her first child. Okay. When she became severely ill and had... Um, what modern people have said was probably postpartum psychosis. Uh, with visions of demons telling her to forsake her faith and her family. Wow, that's intense. And then eventually a vision of Jesus asking, why have you forsaken me? And she claims that she served as handmaiden to the Virgin Mary during this whole episode. I mean, 
I know they say that you have to lie on your CV because everyone's doing it, but <laughs> that's um that's quite extreme. <laughs> what are they gonna do? Ask for a reference? <laughs> <laughs> I guess she could just have another vision and be like, yeah, I was, it, I was great, she says. <laughs> um, but one, one interesting thing about her as a mystic is she convinced her husband to remain chaste, shall we say. Right. Which, yeah, I mean, she doesn't have... Right, essentially, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. Um. Yeah. She. She. It claims in the book of Marjorie Kemp that basically she asked him to stop having sex with her, and he just doesn't. Clearly, a pious man. Or just like you know, a, a decent guy. But there's, that's also tied to one of the first, one of the first things that could either be God's wrath or protection that happens to her. Okay. Which is part of the roof of a church collapses on her while she's praying, but she's fine. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, that one's hard to work out. Like, would you interpret that just as, like, a warning, or...? Well, some people did, and some people were like, well, it was going to collapse anyway, but Jesus protected her. Okay. And I just, I don't know, I think reading it gives us really interesting insight into a lot of the mindset in the period, because I think you don't always think about how integral Christianity was to pe people's lives. Mm -hmm. And I think reading about someone's journey to becoming a mystic really brings this out. Yeah, it does like seem the, like it. Like, there's a lot of time where she sets up multiple businesses. Uh-huh. Um, that just keep failing. Is this, like, before or after the, the visions? This is after the visions, before the church roof collapse. Okay. <laughs> but this is another thing of, like, the, it acts, the text itself actually debates, is this God punishing her for her sins, or is this God just trying to nudge her towards becoming a mystic? Oh, so even she isn't sure at this point. Mm-hmm. One of the things that she does as part of her devotion, which... Again, I think tells tells you a, a lot without telling it in a particularly helpful way, is that part of her devotions was becoming vegetarian. Interesting. Was that um is there anything particularly religious about that? Well the thing, because there's the idea of purity of body. Mm-hmm. And kind of doing a, a penance by not eating meat, kind of like um, oh. like a Lent fast. Yeah, okay. Yeah, now I think of it, like, I guess in Lent you give up meat. So if you do that all the time, you must be, like, extra devoted. Mm -hmm. 
Especially because we're talking about medieval Catholicism, where Easter is the big holiday, much more so than Christmas. Mm-hmm. So Lent is this whole... It's very much purging yourself of your sins for the year. But she's just doing this all the time by not eating meat. So she she's better than you, essentially. I think you phrase it like that. <laughs> because... Understandably, I think there were some people who were like, Oh, you think you're better than everyone else. <laughs> you think you're so holy. <laughs> because people are people. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> and interestingly, there's actually a few chapters of the book after the failed businesses where she is just lamenting that she will never be worthy of the saints. And it was actually her idea to have her husband stop having sex with her. Like, Oh, she wasn't told that in a vision. She was just like... I no, like, this, a lot of saint stories you get... Oh, I, I was told to remain chaste. Mm-hmm. But in this one, it's like, no. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> not gonna. I don't want to. I'm not gonna. And God won't let you. <laughs> yeah. And she does say that he never tried to push the issue, which okay. good guy for the 14th century. Yeah, get you a husband who's supportive of you becoming a mystic, I guess. Yeah, he he was not supportive of it for a while, but then then she became ill again. Uh. Um. But the, there's a few things about her pilgrimages that I really want to talk about. Okay. She went on a pilgrimage to um, Zurichsey, to Bologna, to Venice, to Jerusalem. Oh, wow. That is a lot of travelling. But there's a couple of really interesting things that I kind of want to talk about with you. Um, One of which is the pilgrims having to provide their own bedding for the ship journey. Ah, okay. What's what's uh, super interesting about that? I I just think it's interesting that they had to. <laughs> I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, huh? And wait, wait, just for the the sea journey, or yeah, she she doesn't mention whether she had had to bring it on the way to Venice. Hmm. But it sounds like they were mostly staying in people's houses. Okay. Which uh, is yeah, I have fairly heard that... pilgrims. Yeah, I have heard that you could just like people would take you in if you said you were on a pilgrimage. Which feels like a really good like a really good way to scam people. It does. Or, like burgle them. <laughs> but no no one would lie about being a pilgrim. <laughs> it must have happened. I bet there's records somewhere of it happening. Yeah. It sounds like the kind of thing that, that would be maybe somewhere in, like, the legal records. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I find interesting about the, the pilgrimage, which, again, is not actually a key part of the pilgrimage, but I'm, I'm more here for the life of a medieval woman rather than the mystic part, um, is the fact that mm-hmm. she set, yeah, she had to settle all of her debts before going on the pilgrimage. Oh, is that a practical thing or more of a religious thing like you have to like 
settle all your scores? Annoyingly, even though, yeah, very religious woman, and this is being written down by a priest, doesn't say. I guess because, you know, people would just know why. <laughs> ah, that old chestnut. There's, there is no exposition in this book. No world building. Well, obviously, we are all 15th century people reading this, so mm -hmm. it just makes sense. Either way, I think it's really interesting, this idea of... Because obviously it's a, it's a dangerous thing to do as well. So is it making sure that her husband doesn't have to deal with her debts if she dies going to Jerusalem and back in yeah, the medieval period? True. Oh, because as I recall... Um... Given that if you're a woman and you marry at this point, you like legally don't really exist, your husband is liable for all your debts. And after, yeah, trying and failing to set up as a brewer and a miller, I imagine some debts were hanging around. Yeah, I imagine there was quite a few startup costs that were <laughs> outstanding. But then I suppose also, if you're going on this long journey and like there's quite a real risk that you won't come back, the people you owe money to are going to be quite um, insistent on getting paid. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, she didn't get on with the other pilgrims. Really? So, Marjorie Kemp's main thing as a mystic was weeping and wailing uncontrollably whenever there were images of the crucifixion or mentions of the like the whole Easter story. Isn't that in like I mean every single church mm -hmm. there's gonna be a crucifix, right? It was a and real there's problem. A, there's a lot of those along the road. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, she was um, supposedly channeling the Virgin Mary's grief at the death of Jesus. I mean, that sounds quite exhausting. But also, I yeah, can imagine... Like she, she went to confession two or three times a day, and yeah, basically, basically there's this moment where she starts crying during Easter service, like full-on grief-stricken crying. Mm-hmm. And the other people in the congregation are like, what, what are you doing, Marjorie? <laughs> Please stop doing this. <laughs> and the priest is like, no, she gets it. She gets it more than you. Let, leave her to it. Oh. Like, there, there were a lot of priests that did not enjoy it to the mm. point where... She was actually tried multiple times for heresy. Okay, uh, I can imagine like the average priest might not enjoy being upstaged that much. Mm-hmm. Also, I feel yeah, just like sort of claiming to be a mystic and have visions. Like I feel like there's a very fine line between heresy and the miraculous in this period. Especially when you have things like accusations of preaching, when which women weren't allowed to do. Ah. Um, 
And she was also accused of being a Lullard. I remember. Which was a very reformist um, branch of Christianity. Mm, okay. With things like not accepting transubstantiation. Which is the bread and wine becoming the literal bread and body, blood and body of Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So you, you can see why this would be a problem in 15th century Western Europe. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's some religious tensions emerging, huh? Mm-hmm. And, and then when she gets back from pilgrimage is when she starts visiting Julian of Norwich. Okay. And just staying and talking with her about God and talk, getting her approval, like her sort of stamp of authenticity, essentially, for her visions. Wow. I like that these these two, like medieval religious like power women are Girl bosses. Yeah. <laughs> um interestingly though Julie the Julie Dorit does tell Marjorie Kemp um measure these experiences according to the worship they accrue to God. So like don't you know try not to make it about you. It's about God. It's about <laughs> Jesus. And let the fame go to your head. That's an interesting contrast, though, because Julian of Norwich is just just like staying in the tiny cell all the time and kind of hiding away. And then there's Marjorie Kemp just like going everywhere, telling everyone about her visions. And I don't think I'd say um, Julian of Norwich was hiding away because she wrote Revelations of Divine Love, which is the earliest surviving work in English by a woman. Oh, also I didn't know that. That's cool. like her her record okay. of her visions was widely disseminated, just not by ah, her personally. Okay. So yeah, I just like I said, the religious side is really interesting, but also looking at Marjorie Kemp's experience as a woman, mm-hmm. I think just really fascinates me. Like she yeah. had, we we think she gave birth fourteen times. Oh my goodness. I can see how the celibacy thing came about. So, so the birth of her first child is sometime in the late 1300s. Mm-hmm. And she's like, she's an adult, but still fairly young. She decides to become chaste in 1413. She does mention having another baby after that, so maybe it didn't quite stick the first time. Um, but yeah, after the 14th child, it stuck. I mean, just like, all of that will do something to you, huh? Especially after having such a bad experience with the fir- having the first kid. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, like, thinking about, you know, potentially what went into this um story like the how how the mysticism began yeah like i genuinely recommend people read the book of marjorie kemp if they're interested in that period at all 
Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna have to find it and properly go and read it now because, um, yeah, I had no idea there was, there was so much involved. I do just want to mention one last thing, which is a little bit lighter. Mm -hmm. Which is, there is a moment in it where some people, I think in France, joke about, oh, she doesn't have a tail. And it turns out that there was a joke in continental Europe that British people had tails. Mm -hmm. It was just like a thing. <laughs> I don't know why. I haven't been able to find a reason oh. why people were like, oh yeah, Brits have tails. <laughs> Oh no! I... Is this just another like? Oh, everyone knows about that joke. <laughs> so I think it there's must no be. need to write down why. What on earth? That makes no sense. <laughs> so, yeah, that is Marjorie Kemp, the the tailless mystic of Kings Lynn. I mean, speaking as a British person, uh, I can definitely confirm I do not have a tail. Wink, wink. Funnily enough, I do have a scar where a tail would attach. But that's completely unrelated to ever having had a tail. Honest. I've, that's what I would say if I had had a tail and it had been mysteriously removed. <laughs> By the ghost of Marjorie Kemp. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I hope, so, yeah, I, it's... I hope the ghost of Marjorie Kemp is pleased with her coverage on this show. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little bit of a short one, just because I didn't want to focus too much on the Christianity history, because that's not, that's not our remit, and it's very much not my area. Mm -hmm. But I just find it really interesting, and she's, she's a really interesting figure, I think. A really, a really unusual life. Um, mm -hmm. And... Um, something very out of the stereotype we might have for the Middle Ages, I guess. I mean, like, I guess. Well, yeah, she about, she like... went abroad one time as far as Jerusalem without her husband three times. Mm. Wow. It probably helps that presumably Mr. Kemp, Mr. John Kemp, was paying someone to look after the 14 children. I'm trying to imagine her just like trailing 14 children on this pilgrimage <laughs> while hysterically weeping. <laughs> just the surrounding pilgrims being. That is an image. It's no wonder the other pilgrims left her behind in Venice. Yeah. Oh yeah, I missed that part. They did leave her behind in Venice because oh she, she got really she got really ill during their like they had a 13-week stopover essentially in Venice. Okay. And she I got really sick and the other pilgrims just kind of <laughs> left. To get rid of Marjorie. Quite possibly literally, thank God. Who knows? We don't have their side of this. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if you're interested in medieval Christianity, I mean, if you're like really interested in medieval Christianity, you've probably already read the book of Marjorie Kemp. But if you haven't, you should. If you're just like medium level interested in medieval Christianity. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I found it really interesting and like, I don't know, the high medieval period is cool. It's not. It's fun. There, there's it's a lot of my, It's not my main vibe, but 
is cool. There's a lot of wacky stuff going on, and I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if you want to support us, maybe help us buy some more cool books. Because I, I did actually buy a physical copy of this from the second-hand bookshop where you get fruit when you buy books, which is a oh, real thing. Paradise Books. Paramount. 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 Yeah. Yeah, I bought a book of novelty tea cosy patterns when I was there last, and the woman behind the counter gave me a banana. I, I got a tangerine. <laughs> I, I guess shout out to Paramount Books in Manchester. <laughs> Worth a visit. Um, but yeah, if you want to help us go back to that, that shop and get more books and fruit, you can go to patreon.com slash bread and thread and get access to monthly recipes and a Discord server. You can also find us on Tumblr at bread and thread, where there will be images of things that we talk about and uh, teasers for upcoming episodes. And we, uh, we curate a little blog of various related things. Um, we reblog some history stuff. Yeah. I think, yeah, there was a really interesting post about this kind of pasta that only three people know how to make. So that's on there. I read that one. That Yeah, that's very cool. Um, you should go check it out. You should. And you can um, also email sorry. us. Sorry, were you about to email? You, you can email. Oh, I'll email. You can also email us at breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com with uh, ideas for episodes you'd like us to look into, um, thoughts on um, any visions you might have had. Um, Do you have a tail? (laughs) Do you have a tail? Uh, We should do a poll. I'm going to do a Tumblr poll. Do you have a tail? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, you can also suggest episodes. Or local artists, or people, people in books to feature in these episodes. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.